Hi, and welcome to Power of 10, a podcast about design operating at many levels, from thoughtful detail through to organizational transformation to changes in society and the world. My name's Andy Pollain, a designer, educator, and writer, and currently group director of client evolution at Fjord. My guest today is Dr. Anne Galloway. She's an associate professor at Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, and brings her background in cultural studies and science, technology, and society studies to the study of design and the practice of design research. Anne teaches a course in design ethnography and speculative design and leads the Modern Human Lab. When not at work, Anne is a shepherd to a small flocks of Arapawa sheep and rare breed ducks, which inspire her research into farm animal welfare and public controversies. Welcome to Power of Ten, Anne. Good morning. Thank you very much. So you've got quite a kind of interesting background. I'm going to ask you about it in a second. I wanted to kind of start, though, with the quote from Ursula Le Guin that you have on, on your website. It's from the lathe of heaven. We're in the world, not against it. It doesn't work to try and stand outside things and run them that way. It just doesn't work. It goes against life. There is a way, but you have to follow it. The world is, no matter how we think it ought to be. You have to be with it. You have to let it be. And then in on the Modern Human website, you have these three questions of what if we refuse to uncouple nature and culture? What if we deny that human beings are exceptional? What if we stop speaking and listening only to ourselves? And the Modern Human Lab explores everyday entanglements of humans and non-humans and imagines more sustainable ways of thinking, making and doing. So, Anne, let's get started by first talking about what do you mean by all of that? The Ursula Le Guin quote I love mostly because a critical perspective or an activist perspective, anything that says that we ought to be changing the world in any way, always assumes that we need to fix something, that the world is broken, and that uh, designers especially are well suited to be able to solve some of these problems. And I like thinking about what it means to respond to injustice by accepting it. <laughs> not in the sense of believing that it's okay or right, because clearly it's been identified as unjust or unjust. But I, I love Le Guin's attention to the fact that there is a way to be in the world. And as soon as we think that we're outside of it, any choices or decisions or actions that we take are, well, they sit outside of it as well. I like being embedded in the trouble. I like Donna Haraway's idea of staying with the trouble. And it's not that we have to accept that things are, are problematic, but rather that we have to work within the, the structures that already exist, not to keep them that way. In fact, many should be dismantled or, or changed, but rather to accept that there is sort of a, a flow to the universe. And of course, Le Guin was talking about Taoism. But here, what I wanted to draw attention to is that often our imperative to fix or to solve or to change things comes with a belief that we're not part of the, the world that we're trying to, to fix and change. And it's that that I want to highlight. And that when we start asking difficult questions about the world, we can never remove ourselves from them. We're complicit. We are, we're on the receiving end of, of things. We're, we're never distant from it. And I think that that subtle but important shift in deciding how we approach our work is is really important so in your in your paper that you wrote or oh, it's a chapter actually isn't it the speculative design as a research method that you wrote with Catherine Caldwell mm -hmm. you talk quite a lot about this idea that speculative design kind of speaks to itself mm -hmm. a lot and it's you know we you're an academic I've been an academic it is 
quite academic as well in in its kind of nature and and there's a certain with that i think goes a certain kind of class and aloofness perhaps that could be um, leveled at it although that's not always certainly not always the case with all speculative designers before we kind of launch into that, because I think this is where that, that idea that design is sort of somehow outside of the world and making a critique of it. Before mm. we go into it, for those of people who might not know, could you describe or explain what speculative design is and what it aims to do? I know that's actually a <laughs> more difficult question, than, <laughs> but okay. what's your take on that? Oh, to do it a great disservice. I mean, no matter what I say, there's going to be 10 speculative yeah. designers who stick their hands up and go, oh God, that's not what I do. So let's just give it uh, a really simple sort of, I like actually Dun and Raby's original conception of critical design being interrogative and challenging the status quo. I think that that's the most important thing when we talk about it as applied to design. It questions design itself. Then there's the element of uh, speculative design that questions the world as well. So I think that it's a, it's a questioning or a, a troubling practice. It's meant to make things look different or help us see them differently. It's fictional, I think, is the important part. Right. So it extrapolates something that's going on now into the future and, and creates normally, it's most often physical and always artifacts of that future right? And yeah. as, as objects to make people think more critically about where the future might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ask what if questions. Yeah. Okay. So I was thinking about this, that, and then I was reading well, this sort of in conjunction with the Ursula Grin quote, and mm-hmm. I was trying to think, I mean, it's unusually in the sense that it's a discipline or a, a practice of you know, design that uses its own practice to critique itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's using design to critique design in many respects, because a, mm-hmm. a lot of what speculative design is talking about is, look what happens when we put stuff into the world mm-hmm. um, in some way without kind of much thought. And I was trying to think if there was another discipline that does that. I think probably in the humanities there are, and certainly in sort of sociology, I think there probably is, where it uses its own kind of discipline to critique itself. But it's kind of a fairly unusual setup. Mm. I would think actually it's quite common in the humanities, perhaps the social sciences, where it's not common is in the sciences. Right. So any reflexive turn in any of the humanities would have used the discipline. I mean, historiography is that sort of thing. Um, Applied philosophy is that sort of thing. Uh, Reflexive anthropology is that sort of thing. So I think it's actually quite common, just not in the sciences. And design often tries to align itself with the sciences instead. Yeah, there was a great piece in Aeon the other day about um, that science doesn't have an adequate description or explanation for consciousness, and yet it's the only thing that it can be certain of. Mm-hmm. And so, so with that, you know, it, it also doesn't really seem to come up in the technology industry that much because it's so heavily res- aligned with science, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But technology, and you, you know, you've got this background in cultural studies and science and technology and society. Uh, technology is a, a really strong vein throughout uh, speculative design, mm-hmm. and indeed your work, right? So, counting mm-hmm. sheep is about sort of Internet of Things and sheep. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that and why you're, I am talking to you from the picture, you know, thanks Mm -hmm. to uh, Lord Lord of the Rings, it basically (laughs) looks like you're kind of living in um, part of the Shire in in Middle Earth. (laughs) I do live in a place that looks remarkably like the Shire. It's a bit disconcerting at times. The science and, and technology question in speculative design, I think, is, first of all, a matter of convenience. Science fiction, speculation, they lean historically, 
habitually towards science and tech, it becomes a, an easy target for critique. Not that it's not necessary, but it's just, it's right there. So why not? There's that element to it. Uh, it has a, an easier ability to be transformed into something fanciful or terrifying, which allows for certain kinds of storytelling through speculation that I think people, both creators and audiences or, or readers, really enjoy. Now, the irony of all of this, of course, is that arguably one of the, the greatest concerns that people have would be tied to technological determinism, the idea that we are going to have these technologies anyway, so what are we going to do about it? Now, when you speculate using these technologies, what you're doing is actually reinforcing the idea that these technologies are coming. You play right <laughs> into the same technological determinism that you're trying to critique. In fact, one of the counting sheep scenarios was designed specifically to avoid the technology, and it was the one that got the most positive responses. So could you describe the project? The project was, it's called County Sheep New Zealand Merino in an Internet of Things. Uh, it was funded by the Royal Society of New Zealand Marsden Fund. So I was given a, a very generous grant to explore methodological innovation. I mean, first of all, my, my research tends to focus on developing and assessing new methods. Then it was an ethnographic case study. I always work as an ethnographer first. I'm an anthropologist by training, and I'd been studying sheep breeding, merino sheep breeding. And in order to sort of envision what the world of, of merino sheep breeding could be in the future, especially in the face of things like climate change and animal welfare concerns, I started imagining different scenarios of how we might interact with sheep. And so I purposely designed a spectrum, a long spectrum from very realist to completely fantastic. And I placed my scenarios along that spectrum. And so on the most fantastic end, we have a genetically engineered half sheepdog, half sheep that becomes a pet that is networked and sensor technologies um, keep the, the nation informed and allow people to you know, maintain a sense of nationality and connection. So that's utterly fantastic. The most realist one on the other end of the spectrum was an urban farm where all of the animals were tagged just as they actually are with RFID tags and people can track them that way. So that one could be made tomorrow, whereas the, the other one would probably never happen. Then there were two more scenarios. One was grow your own lamb, which was looking at the consumption of meat and allowing people to either guide a farmer in growing lamb in vivo, like in the real world, versus growing lamb in vivo or in petri dishes. And so we played with that a bit. Uh, and this was well before the Impossible Burger became common news. <laughs> and then the, <laughs> the, final, the final scenario is the one that I was just talking about, actually, and it's called the Bone Knitter. And it was created as sort of an, an antidote to everything else. It's a fictional technology, but it uses merino wool through a hand-cranked knitting machine. And a person with a broken limb puts their limb in the knitting machine and a technician hand-cranks and knits a three-layer cast over the broken bone. So it's an orthopedic device, but it very, very low technology 
very, very slow technology, everything that was sort of the opposite of the kind of technologies that we'd been positioning for the other scenarios. And it's the one that's had the most positive impact. And it's currently uh, part of the uh, Museum of Applied Arts in Vienna collection. So what did you discover? You said it's had the most positive response and uh, I know you got responses from people. So what did you discover? Well, I think that the one of the major drives for that particular project, like I said, I my research is, is targeting how to assess creative research methods. How do we know they're actually working or what is it that they actually do? And one of the concerns that I had about speculative design is that it claimed to create debate or enable social change. And yet we had absolutely no evidence for this. In fact, nobody had ever even bothered testing it to find out. And I don't mean testing in a scientific sense. I mean, just asking even in an exhibition space what people think. So what I did was run surveys, online surveys for all of the the scenarios, soliciting people's impressions of them. Now, the bone knitter was distinguished because nobody talked about the bone knitter itself. They talked about what it meant to be injured and ill, what it means to have a technology that can't be supported within current infrastructures. It opened up an entire new world of conversation. And for me, that was the most exciting result that came out of it is because the design itself, it was the least interesting and most interesting. People didn't talk about it. What it allowed them to do was talk about everything else that concerned them. Whereas the other designs seem to compel people to talk about that design itself. I thought that was really interesting. So it became a design research prompt or prop that yeah. you would use for discussion. Yeah, exactly. So with all of this, I and mean, I kind of made the, this sort of pop at the beginning, just before we were recording, that there's a sense of, because uh, of everything going on in the world, that if only designers could kind of run the world, everything would be fine, <laughs> right? Because we can kind of see all the solutions to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you want designers to get out of this kind of work or this kind of perspective? Humility. <laughs> I mean, that's simple. I am one of those people. And it's and it's because of being an ethnographer as well and, and doing participant observation and interviewing many people and their ideas about design. I've run into far more people who think that designers are arrogant than ones who don't. And this has always really interested me. I've thought, well, what is it that designers do that seems to rub non-designers the wrong way? And part of it is this sense of or implication that they know better than the rest of us, or that a designer will come in and say, let me fix your problem before even asking if there is a problem that the person wants fixed. And I actually gave a a guest lecture in a class just the other day where I suggested that there were people in the world who thought that designers were arrogant. And one of the postgraduate students in the class really took umbrage at this and wanted to know why it was that designers were arrogant for offering to fix problems, but, you know, a builder wasn't or a doctor wasn't. And what was your answer? (laughs) Well, my answer was, well, generally speaking, people go to them first (laughs) and say, "I, I have this problem, I need help. Whereas designers come up with a problem, go find people that they think have it, and then tell them they'd like to solve it. And I think that just on a a social level, that is profoundly antisocial. That is not how people enjoy socially interacting with people. 
So I, I can completely say that, and I, I think that you know I would say that that argument is also leveled uh, quite rightly at a lot of Silicon Valley, which is the, mm. you know, the answer to everything is is some kind of um, technology engineering startup mm-hmm. um, to fix all the problems that the other technology engineering startups that are no longer startups have, have mm. created. So you know, and it's probably true of of quite a lot of areas of business and finance as well, and so and, and politics for that matter. But I, the counter, I can imagine designers saying, well, that's not really true because one of the things we, you know, as human-centered designers, the first thing we do is we go out and, you know, we do design ethnography, we go and speak mm-hmm. to people, we go and observe them, we do all of that stuff and really understand their problems. So we're, we're not just telling people kind of what needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. We're going there and understanding things. What's your response to that? Well, I mean, that's my first response is, well, yes, that's absolutely true. There's lots of very good designers in the world who do precisely that. Because I work in an, an academic institution, though, I'm, I'm training students. And what my job involves is getting them to the point where they know the difference between telling somebody something and asking somebody something, what it means to actually understand their client or their, their user. The, you know, I prefer to just refer to them as people, what it is that people want or, or need. And one of the things that I offer in all of my classes is uh, after doing the sort of um, participant observation, my students always have the opportunity to submit a rationale for no design intervention whatsoever. Hmm. And that's nice. not something that is offered to people in, in a lot of you know business contexts because there's a business case that's being made. Whereas I want my students to understand that sometimes the research demonstrates that people actually are okay. And that even if they have little problems, they're still okay with that, that people are quite capable of living with contradictions and that they will accept some issues because it allows for, for other things to emerge. And that if they want, they can provide what you know, the evidence for saying, actually, the worst thing we could do in this scenario is design anything, and I refuse to design. Right. The people make trade-offs all the time because mm-hmm. the, the pain of change is much greater than whatever it is that they're currently living with. Yeah, and it might not even be that. It it might just be that they're content. And what's wrong with being content? Why do we want to force people to be more than content? I mean, there's many cultures and religions around the world that don't believe in happiness. They believe in contentedness. And that's part of that goes back to that being in the world instead of thinking that you have to rise above it somehow. So that's quite a subtle point. And I, I imagine there's also a culture. Where are you from, actually? Uh, I didn't mean to ask this before. <laughs> I'm Canadian, but I grew up in South America. Right. OK, because it's, um, you know, arguably there's a, a sort of culture of striving that's I mean it's true in a lot of Europe, but it's also very, very kind of prevalent, obviously, in, in North America um, mm. of contentment isn't good enough you know you should be striving to your dream and of course the the whole kind of mantra of the i don't really want to say millennials but it's certainly the, <laughs> it's the whole mantra of sort of instagram is, is you know find your passion and then yeah. there's this whole kind of workaholism that's sort of going along with it of you know everyone should be working yeah until they die, and, die. Um, otherwise they're not gonna be happy see i didn't grow up in a protestant country the protestant work ethic makes no sense to me this is not something i was raised <laughs> with i don't understand people's compulsion to do this so I don't suffer from workaholism. <laughs> I don't. I, I work to live, not the other way around. And I've never wondered why 
I'm supposed to love my job more than not. Studs Terkel has the most amazing book called Work, in which he interviewed, you know, a bazillion people about jobs that they do, whether they like them or not. And this idea that you're supposed to love capitalist labor is beyond my comprehension. Because for me, the system is so flawed that I owe no loyalty to anyone. So yeah, David Grabe's yeah. stuff talks about that quite a lot as well. And that's very much my position and, and my politics in, in everyday life. And it's very much not the politics of my students. So that's quite a subtle point, though, between uh, contentment and happiness. Uh, how do your design students respond to that? Well, they respond exactly like you suggested. They're looking for passion. And if there's no passion, they think there's a problem. And I work really hard to try to get them to understand that if the person is content with what they've described, why do they need passion? So we we try to question what passion is, what happiness is, and what contentment is. And I'd say that maybe a quarter of them can sort of wrap their head around the, the differences because you're right, they are very subtle. And it tends to be very difficult for people who have been raised within Protestant cultures to to really distinguish between them. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I don't have to tell you this, I guess, but how much the um, when you trace the cultural roots back or the cultural pathways back of disciplines and ways of working and mindsets and paradigms, how much it starts to influence um, what has become kind of normalised inside uh, a discipline. Like, So I was hoping you were going to take the bait when I said human-centred design. <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, that is, I mean, and that is part of the bias, of course, is this, you know, if we're obsessed with human happiness, then it automatically costs others. And it, it costs other humans, it costs other forms of life. And it's, it, it is precisely that, this idea that we are the most important creatures living on the planet, that we're separate from the planet, is it's sort of antithetical to just my, my worldview. And so I started my lab precisely because I thought that human-centered design is important. It does good work. I'm glad it exists. I need to look at something beyond that that reintegrates us with the world and doesn't make us special at all. And that's, that's humbling, and people don't enjoy being humbled. <laughs> so on that, you, you've written a piece called Flock, Mm-hmm. Uh, which kind of talks about your relationship with your with your sheep, really. And there was a mm-hmm. there was a piece in it where that I thought was really a fascinating observation. And I was thinking about it. With, I was actually just thinking about it with my cat. That uh, mm-hmm. I, I wrote my PhD about play and and interactivity. Mm-hmm. And when my cat, particularly when my cat was younger, I kid you not, we used to play hide and seek in the garden. I used to run oh, behind a tree. It. And it used to it used <laughs> to creep up on me. And and of course, people play with their dogs all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's a play is uh, incredibly species universal mm-hmm. and interspecies that you can you can play with an you know a cat or a dog in the way that you can't have a conversation with them. True. And you talked about um, you know we assume that domestication only means bringing something into the human world and under human control, but in fact it also goes the other way that they sort of domesticate you in, in mm-hmm. some respects. And I, I realize, you know, every time I come home and my cat's meowing his head off and I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Mm. You know, I, I've just become this slave to his meowing and, Absolutely. and, go, and go and feed him <laughs> and that it works both ways. So of course. tell me a bit about that. So how has your relationship with your sheep enhanced your sense of humility? Ah, Oh, I think that honestly, I I've grew up with dogs. I have a cat. I mean, my best friend is my cat. She's 14 years old now. But none of the animals I've lived with have humbled me and troubled me as totally as the sheep have. 
I've learned more from sheep in four years than a lifetime with other animals. And it surprises me and delights me on a daily basis. So sheep are really funny. I mean, both literally and sort of figuratively, they, they have good senses of humor. <laughs> they have, um, they like to play. Um, some of them don't like to play at all and will just come and headbutt you and then bugger off in another direction. The thing that I think is the, the most interesting and most relevant to this is that they're individuals. And unlike pets, which we tend to always assume are individuals, uh, a farm animal and especially a flock animal tend to be more easily grasped as a mass, as the flock rather than as individual sheep. And I made a point when I got sheep to meet them as individuals. And what this meant was that I was forced to acknowledge that I like some more than others, just like I do with people, that (laughs) some like me more than others, just like with people, (laughs) and that we negotiate ways of being together, and that I can't do anything with the sheep without their cooperation. I mean, I suppose I could, but it would require brute force and violence that would well, it would annihilate any relationship. You might have to kill or hurt them at least. And that's counterproductive on many levels. So in order to get to the point where, you know, they can be shorn, they can be given a vaccination, they can have their hoofs trimmed, like general maintenance that requires handling that they don't enjoy, we have to have a relationship of trust the rest of the time. So the sense, though, my sheep know things better than me in all sorts of ways. They, they smell differently. They see differently. They live at a completely different time scale. They live very, very slowly and in short increments. It's the most profoundly different way of being in the world than I've experienced as, as a human. The, you know, I look at my cat and she's a little predator and it, you know, it tickles the competitive part of me. Whereas when I sit in the middle of the flock of sheep, I am at one with the world. I mean, I don't, I know that sounds funny, (laughs) but it was the first time in my life I actually felt that feeling. And I finally started to understand what those Taoists had been talking about all this time. I'm like, oh my God, this is Mm. what they mean, (laughs) where you just be. And it's a funny, funny sort of psychological state too, because if a flock of sheep or a flock of any prey animal is calm, you can rest assured that you are safe. And so to sit in the middle of a bunch of sheep that are calm is the safest I have ever felt in my entire existence. So, I mean, it's interesting as humans, because I I feel like at the moment there, everyone's just on high alarm the whole time. So no one feels safe at all. It's it's the sort of ripple thing. Exactly. So I would rather be with my sheep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can can sympathize with that. Uh, How many do you have, by the way? Oh, just nine. Okay. And how many do you have to have to have a flock? Like you have Um, a pair and then it gets, becomes a flock. Is there a rule about that? A flock is, it actually, the first level of categorization is it goes individual, then mob, then flock. So within any flock, whether it's, uh, yeah, (laughs) isn't that lovely? (laughs) So a mob of sheep are the little gangs of sheep that form within a flock. So they're friends. Those are peer groups. So a flock can be content with each other, but there will be mobs within the flock that are very clearly happier with each other. They're the ones who play together. They're the ones who sleep touching each other, that sort of thing. So it's a slightly more intimate relationship. So you need at least four animals, five animals to make a flock. But a flock, I've seen flocks of 10,000. I don't know how you compare five animals to 10,000, but it's possible. I don't know if you'd still feel safe. (laughs) 
in the middle of them. Maybe I have, as long as the animal is calm. <laughs> and so are they, Chip? They're all RFID'd? No, none of them are. None of, you, no. none of yours? Okay. No. But in commercial, commercial flocks are... Um, breeding flocks are like if somebody is a stud breeder, uh, sheep are exempt from the national tagging system. I think that when they introduced it sort of, I think it was five or six years ago, they introduced it to cattle and deer first because those are smaller flocks. New Zealand's national sheep flock is still pretty massive. There's still seven sheep per person in the country. And so I think that when they rolled out the RFID tracing program, they just didn't know. And there's a a problem with what is the appropriate uh, measure of sheep. Is it the individual? Is it the mob? Or is it the flock? Well, it's fascinating about the role of technology that Genevieve Bell on on Mm -hmm. Mark Pesci's Next Billion Seconds podcast was talking to me about the research into cows as they started being able to go into automated milking sheds. That, of course, they had this moment of initially going at sunrise and sundown because that's when the farmer used to milk them. Mm-hmm. And then after a while they realized, oh, hang on a second, I can do this whenever I want. Yeah. And and so the rhythm can completely change. And they also realized that um, because they were tracking them, that cows have friendship circles and they have they have cows they hang out with and other cows they don't hang out with so much. And 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 so this tech that is there to kind of automate and to make humans' lives mm. easier in terms of kind of tracking and automating animal husbandry actually kind of reveals a whole load of invisible societies that we've not seen before. Well, I think the the interesting part about that is who that we is. I have never met a farmer who doesn't know which cows are friends, which with other cows. Farmers know these things because they watch their animals. No technology was needed there. The technology enables other people to see those connections, but the, the shepherd or the stock person They didn't need that technology to be told that. And the interesting thing about tech like uh, automatic milking, uh, so robotic milking for for cows, is Mm. that it allows, like you said, the cattle to have a significant amount of agency that they would have been denied before. And yet one of the repercussions of the introduction of these systems is that cows that don't adapt to the technology are being culled from the herd. Oh, God, really? Yeah. So, I mean, it allows a certain type of cow to live a much more independent life, but the cows that don't adapt are gone. And so now we're breeding animals, not just to meet our system, but our technological system. So, I mean, it's a, it's a double-edged sword there. It's not just about freeing the cows. (laughs) I mean, I was thinking, so we're coming up to time. I was thinking as you were talking about this and as you were talking about, um, the relationship between sort of designers and, you know, human-centered design and the potential arrogance that comes with that, that, mm-hmm. um, you know, I wonder if designers would do better to view their humans as as animals, actually. So rather than, and I don't mean that particularly from an outsider way, I mean more about in, in the sense of you being in the center of your sheep. Mm-hmm. I, I had a kind of strange moment uh, the other day when I was in a, um, I was in Frankfurt airport and I was going up in an elevator and there's, it's a sort of elevator, it's all glass. Mm-hmm. And there's an entrance at one, you use one of those elevators, you go in one side and you go out the other side. And as it got to the top and the side that people had gone into, because the glass doors mm-hmm. uh, was just faced with a kind of blocked you know, wall because they were facing the, the, the wrong way. There was this moment in this guy's eyes where he, he just looked like a panicked monkey. And I had this kind of real moment of like of seeing everyone in the uh, elevator as a bunch of hairless monkeys and then thinking, oh, you know, here they are with all their suitcases and everything. But mm-hmm. it was kind of actually quite, um, I felt so very empathetic in the process of, of seeing it in that way. Suddenly that, that kind of boundary between, you know, us and the rest of the world kind of mm-hmm. went away. 
So I don't know, would you, do you think that's a, a useful speculative design approach? Oh, well, I do actually. And I mean, that's the, <laughs> I read a, a book about sheep in which the author started the book. The very first paragraph is the author meeting a sheep for the first time and commenting how he couldn't see or, or recognize or, or bond at all with the sheep because of how weird sheep's eyes are. And my immediate reaction was, this person has no idea what a sheep is because sheep don't communicate with their eyes. Sheep communicate with their ears, with their body posture, a little bit of, of movement. So the ability to communicate with a sheep is to not use any of our assumed modes of communication. Communication with sheep is successful only when you both are animals. <laughs> God, there's so many lessons there for, uh, for designers <laughs> and design researchers in particular to, to take on, I think. But that's, that's the most important thing I've learned from my sheep is that I can't meet them as me, common animality. That's very good. So I'm going to end with one thing, which is um, the power of 10 is really this idea. It's, it's based on the um, Eames film of mm -hmm. powers of 10. Of, which is beautiful. Yeah, it's really, and you get these repeating patterns at different levels mm -hmm. of, of zoom, different powers of 10. But it's also about this idea that small things can have a kind of outsized effect, mm -hmm. a kind of ripple effect. So my last question to you is, what one small thing in the world do you think either um, has an amazing outsized effect and it goes unrecognized or, or one small thing do you think needs to be, should be redesigned to have that effect? Oh, I'm one of these people who dreams of glass slaughterhouses. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I am trying to be slightly provocative, but I'm also being serious. Um, <laughs> if I could do anything in the world, I would make slaughter utterly visible. Okay. That's not a small thing, but that's a pretty major thing. But that would, yeah, I can imagine that would have an incredible effect be a lot more vegetarians. I don't know what that effect would be. I mean, I assumed I would become a vegetarian after killing lambs that I had named, and I didn't. Uh, maybe it'd make people more respectful of, of the meat they're eating. Yeah, I have no idea what it would do, but I would love to see. <laughs> well, that's, that's been the most amazing answer to that question so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, glad to have been of service. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for being my guest on Power of Ten. Well, thank you for having me. You ask great questions. <laughs> Thank you. I shall put links to uh, uh, the Modern Human Lab and uh, anything else that, uh, where can people find you online? Uh, well, more than Human Lab, there's my university webpage that lists sort of, you know, my, my academic life. And then I'm on Twitter as Anne Galloway as well. Brilliant. Well, I'll put all the links in the show notes. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Power of Ten. If you want to learn more about other shows on the This Is HCD network, visit thisishcd.com, where you'll find ProdPod with Adrian Tan, Ethnopod with Dr. John Curran, and Bringing Design Closer with Jerry Scullion. You'll also find the transcripts and links mentioned in the show, and where you can also sign up to our newsletter, join our Slack channel to connect with other designers all around the world. My name is Andy Pallain. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.